Hello, I'm Charles Goddard, Editorial Director at The Economist Group. Welcome to the second in a series of podcasts on chemical pollution in the ocean. The podcasts are part of Back to Blue, an initiative of Economist Impact and the Nippon Foundation on the Health of the Ocean. In the first podcast, we explored the scope and scale of chemical pollution in the ocean and asked how worried should we be about the impact of pollution on ocean life and ecosystems and, of course, on human health. I think unlike plastic pollution, which of course is highly visible, chemical pollution is less visible and less discernible. And in many ways, it's a much more intractable problem still than plastic pollution. You can listen to this first podcast on backtoblueinitiative.com. In this second podcast, we're going to look at the extraordinary number of chemicals that have been created, indeed that continue to be created, produced and in use. What inventories exist on these chemicals, how much we know about their toxicity and potential for harm, and how well they're regulated. We'll also explore the regulatory, legislative and other interventions that are needed to better manage, reduce and prevent chemical pollution. So joining me to discuss this issue, I'm absolutely delighted to welcome Dr. Wang Zhanyun, who's a scientist at the Swiss Federal Laboratories for Material Science and Technology and a leading thinker on this issue. Welcome, Zhanyun. Thank you so much. So shall we begin with the recent paper that you contributed to and the rather startling number, the startling finding, should I say, that the number of chemicals and mixtures of chemicals on the market is perhaps three times greater than had previously been estimated. And chemicals, of course, have always been important for human and economic development, but this is a surprise, isn't it? How did you arrive at this quite extraordinary number? So the story started in the 2018 when I was a involved in the preparation for the global chemicals outlook. And then there was raised the question about how many chemicals actually are there on the global market. Previously, people have always used these hundred thousands in the literature. And then we decided to take a a refreshed look. uh, And we noticed that actually the previous studies always referred to the hundred thousands of chemicals produced in uh, several developing states. And at the same time, I, I was aware that there are actually also many more inventories also in other parts of the world. So I decided to take a more comprehensive approach. Uh, we looked into the inventories of the European Union and other 18 countries. That's why we came up with a much higher number. And we noticed that many of these inventories have the chemicals unique to them. I think that's also part of the reason why we have a much higher number, because previously uh, we just look at the developed state situation, but now we have a more complete global picture. So there's clearly, I mean, obviously this is an extraordinary figure, but there's clearly some debate, isn't there, about the number of chemicals actually in use at any given time. And some are saying that the number is far fewer than 350,000. You mentioned that maybe closer to tens of thousands, not hundreds of thousands. And it's still a very, very large number. But how do we, how do we make sense of those numbers? And what are the caveats we need to consider? Indeed, it is a really difficult question to answer how many chemicals are actually on the market at this very moment. This is also because many of these inventory, once they list a chemical, they do not delist them. So, so that 
the chemical inventories give the kind of the maximal scenarios. Also, many inventories do not provide information on the current status. However, it is still very important to keep these uh, 300,000 in mind because many chemicals are using uh, long-lasting products so that even though they are no longer used, we may still encounter them uh, during our daily life or like when we recycle certain materials, certain products, they may still contaminate our uh, material flows or product, the new recycled materials. The second is that all the chemicals listed in, in the inventories, they are allowed to be used. So it may no longer be used, but it can still be used in the future. So I think this is also very important to a point to remember. So that's, uh, it is important to always keep this 350,000 uh, in mind. These are the kind of the chemicals that are allowed to be used and can be used in the future. And this, of course, includes mixtures of chemicals. I wonder if you can just tell us a little bit about what that means as well. I think this is a really good question. So in our study, we found that there are about from the chemicals that with CAS numbers. So the, here is a caveat. So that we have about two thirds of the chemicals we identify CAS numbers. And from them, again, the one fourth mixtures, polymers and UVCBs, so-called highly complex mixtures. And for many of them, we do not know their identities. That is a huge issue because for those chemicals, we do not necessarily have all the safety information that we needed in order to safely manage them. Many of them are also high production volume chemicals. Interesting. And I, I mean, maybe just to follow on that point, and I'm not sure if, how closely they're related, but uh, if many of the identities of the mixtures are not known, it was also one of the findings that the identities of many of the chemicals that you looked at were in fact publicly unknown because they were claimed to be confidential which of course also raises another important question about what is known about the toxicity of those chemicals. I wonder if you could just sort of help us understand that too. Uh, yes. So in our study, about 50,000 chemicals, they were kind of claimed as confidential business information. So we do not know the identities. So this is uh, uh, very legit in the current regulatory framework due to the concern of breaching the trade secrets, but it also significantly limits the ability of a regulatory scientists, academic scientists to also independently check the safety of these chemicals. And also more importantly is that we do not know if they have enough information or not because of the confidential business information claims. So it's kind of like a uh, I, I wouldn't say it's a, like a ticking bomb, but it, it's kind of like it's an unknown threat. So one, one likes to imagine that all chemicals are in fact tested for their toxicity to the environment and uh, or products in which they're used. But that clearly is not the case, is it? Uh, no. Unfortunately, we would wish for that. When many uh, regulatory frameworks for managing chemicals were established, they often granted a large number of chemicals 
as existing substances. So for those chemicals that's already on the market before the legislation came into force, we kind of assumed they were safe. So no safety information were required. Like in the US alone, this would count about 50,000 such chemicals. So uh, actually, we recently tried to do a study to understand how many chemicals actually been, have been assessed, like either as new chemicals or as some of countries uh, do assess existing chemicals. And uh, so we came to the numbers like from the yeah, 300,000, it was about 100,000. We have some sort of safety information uh, that have been assessed by the regulators. But it, it does not tell, uh, or still don't really know how many chemicals have how much information. That, that information is still not available in the public domain. So I think that's really quite shocking in a way, isn't it? But I, I think also it leads me to another question, and that is, if we don't know very much about the chemicals themselves, does that mean that we have been underestimating the scope and the scale of chemical pollution on, on land and in the ocean? And does that upwards revision of the number of chemicals that you think there are uh, out there mean that we need to revise our own understanding of the potential for chemical pollution? Oh Yes, we have underestimated the chemical pollution on a large note. And we have only been monitoring or observing maybe hundreds or thousands of chemicals, which is just a very small amount of the chemicals on the global market. And when we look at the human health impacts, we only look at uh, like the global burden of diseases, looking only at lead and occupational exposure to uh, 12 chemicals. So it is a very, very small amount that we are very observing. But the many others was that we are not quiet. I think they are also doing certain harms and we will learn more in the coming years. I think to that point too, we appear not to know a great deal, do we, about how chemicals impact biodiversity and ecosystem functioning. And one recent study suggests why that science does tend to look at this issue in a quite siloed way. And there's a lot of work on pesticides, for example, but not much on other chemicals. Why do you think this is and, and what can be done about that, do you think? I think that this is a really brilliant question. I think this is because the chemical pollution have been largely underestimated and overlooked in the public domain. So it is not a sexy topic for many related disciplines like ecology, even the chemistry, synthetic chemistry. So I think what we really need to do is really to raise awareness about the unknown threats of the chemical pollution and really uh, encourage the collaborative work of all scientists to address that. Previously, we have uh, proposed to establish a global science policy body with the intention is to really uh, bring the issue also of chemicals and pollution uh, to the level of climate change and biodiversity so and also attract the whole scientific community and all the stakeholders to really address them like in a concerted manner. 
You are listening to a Back to Blue podcast, part of an initiative of Economist Impact and the Nippon Foundation on the health of the ocean. I'm speaking to scientist Dr. Wang Zhanyun about the management and regulation of chemicals. Zhanyun, you were just alluding to the fact that there needs to be a much more robust set of solutions to the chemicals challenge. And I just want to talk a little bit now about the current legal and regulatory landscape for chemicals across the world. And of course, it's very opaque and it is uh, often overly complex, but it's also, I think, ultimately ineffective. And I mean, in your view, which countries and regions are doing better with their inventories and with their regulations and others? And why, why do you think that is? I would say that uh, the European Union as a front runner in the field. So I think the most one important milestone is that they establish the reach. So this uh, the reach, the registration, evaluation, authorization, and the restriction of chemicals. Uh, this is a kind of new type of chemical regulation frame, a regulatory framework, because in comparison to the previous framework, it does not only require registration of New chemicals, but also all existing chemicals on the market. So with its model, no data, no market really can help us to really get to know much better about chemicals on, on the market with the safety data. So I think this is a really, really important feature that has also made reach a front runner. Many countries are, are following this approach now, like the Republic of Korea. Turkey. So this is a really important. And also, I think in the European Union, there's a very good understanding of uh, chemical pollution among the policymakers, and they're constantly pushing the agenda forward. So uh, also last year, the European Commission published the Chemicals Strategy for Sustainability, which intends to include more like really advanced concepts, which just come from the scientific community into the legislation. So I think these are the two important features why the European Union is a front runner. One is a very comprehensive inventory. The second is really keeping up with the science development. I think that uh, proactive approach, which is in the REACH legislation that you just mentioned, notably, I think it's shifting of the burden of proof in a way onto companies to show that their products, their chemicals are not harmful, that that certainly offers a much more effective uh, way of managing chemicals. But I think one of the challenges, and I ask you this question, one of the challenges appears to be that even European Union regulatory frameworks find trouble keeping up with the pace of chemicals innovation. And of course, there are challenges too with regrettable substitution. When one chemical is banned, it's quickly replaced by another that quite often is just as harmful. Is shifting the burden onto the companies as the European Union has done and from data being present as to being the critical factor, is that going to be effective, do you think, if the administrative authorities and the regulators can't keep up with the, the pace of innovation? Yes, that's a really good question. It is very difficult to keep up with the chemicals uh, innovation. Even with REACH, there's a lot of issues with the data availability because, as you said before, that we have over-complex regulatory systems. And under REACH, 
there are many, many different requirements for different uh, factors of uh, chemicals on the market, uh, like volume, uh, where they are used, what type of substances they are. There's a lot of caveat or <laughs> possible loopholes in terms of the data requirements. So it is very difficult to have all the data that we need for all the chemicals on the global markets. And I think also the regulators in the European Union are aware of these issues and they're trying their best to, to fix off these issues. Currently, there's also the uh, REACH revision is ongoing, trying to also to keep up with the chemical innovation and also the regulatory frameworks. You mentioned the United Nations Environment Assemblies having identified chemical pollution as a, a key anthropogenic challenge alongside climate change and biodiversity loss. And as you mentioned, there's a campaign underway now to establish the science policy body on chemicals and waste that is somewhat similar to the remit that the IPCC, uh, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, has. And of course, there are already international bodies that deal with certain kinds of chemicals. So we have bodies, treaties and conventions, everything from the Stockholm Convention on Persistent Organic Pollutants to the Minamata Convention on Mercury, a host of large sea conventions and treaties. What do you think that a global science-based organization can do to improve upon the way in which those various bodies and treaties are now acting? I think there are like uh, four aspects that the global science policy body can help to improve. The first is that the current regulatory frameworks or the international agreements, they have very well-defined scope. The Stockholm Convention on POPs, it's about 30-ish chemicals or groups of chemicals I mean, the Minamata Convention is only about mercury. Why are we have still so many other chemicals on the global market? And we do not necessarily have the science policy body to uh, look over them and to really keep up with the science and inform the policy makers. So we do need an overarching science policy body that can cover all chemicals and wastes. This will not duplicate existing frameworks because we have so many chemicals to work on. This also comes to my second point is we have so many chemicals on the market and science is keeping progressing. So it is really important that we can do horizontal scanning of what science is already available, what science tells us. And it's very difficult now. Like uh, every year, there are over 20,000 scientific publications on chemical pollution are published. So we do need a science policy body to take such a gigantic task and help us to conduct horizontal scanning and early warning of a chemical pollution issues when the scientific evidence starts to emerge. Also, the third point is that we do need like to connect better with the scientific community. So currently frameworks mainly working that the uh, requests, the policymakers request information from the scientists, but often scientists are not aware of policy development. So they do not necessarily 
know which scientific evidence is needed, and then so they don't necessarily conduct timely research to support the policy developments. And my last point is that we need to see the environment issues as interconnected. Climate change, biodiversity, chemical pollution, they're all interconnected. But we are working on them in a siloed manner. Therefore, we need a science policy body that perhaps can work with IPCC, can work with EBAS, trying to identify the integrated solutions for addressing the three global environmental threats. And lastly and finally, what are your hopes that this year's United Nations Environment Assembly might actually take that idea, which I think is an extremely important idea, might actually take that idea one step further? We have a lot of hope. I have a lot of hope. We do see a lot of the supports from the scientific community now. We have conducted a campaign last year, and so far there are 19,000 scientists from over 80 countries signed on to support establishing intergovernmental science policy body. And we also see many um, policymakers are supporting. We have, uh, I think there are seven or eight countries or and more Countries are really going to table a, res- a draft a resolution for consideration at the United Nations Environment Assembly next month. And we have also heard many uh, more countries are joining. Uh, we recently, uh, like I read the Facebook message from the environment minister in Sweden. It was very, very encouraging. I think the policymakers, the top level policymakers do recognize it is a very important step to help us or to like equip us to address the global threat of chemical pollution. Dr. Wang Zhanyun, it's really been a great pleasure speaking to you about chemicals, what you know about them and what you're finding out about them and how, of course, we are learning how to manage them better. Thank you so much for joining us and thank you all for listening. In the lead up to the World Ocean Summit 2022, and to the launch of our own chemicals report on the ocean in March, there will be further episodes of these podcasts where we plan to look at different aspects of chemical pollution in the ocean. So do stay tuned and subscribe to this channel. And you can also sign up to our newsletter on backtoblueinitiative.com so we can keep you posted about our latest content on Back to Blue, an initiative of Economist Impact and the Nippon Foundation. Have a good day.